Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Authorities are trying to figure out what caused a police helicopter to crash off the coast of Newport Beach in Orange County, killing one officer and injuring another. The Huntington Beach police helicopter crashed Saturday night, killing Nicholas Vela, a 14-year veteran with the police department. The second officer has been released from the hospital. The National Transportation Safety Board says the pilot made a brief call to report mechanical issues before the crash. At a press conference in San Diego County on Friday, Governor Gavin Newsom and other California Democrats said they'll use the U.S. Supreme Court's reasoning on the Texas anti-abortion law to advance more gun control measures in the state. KQED's Alex Emsley reports. State Senator Bob Hertzberg says he's working on a bill modeled after the Texas law that would allow private citizens to sue to enforce California's assault weapons ban. What is good for the goose? is good for the gander. A federal judge ruled against the state's decades-old assault weapons ban last year, though it's still in place as that ruling is appealed. Governor Gavin Newsom says if private citizens can enforce anti-abortion laws in Texas, Californians can do the same to ban automatic rifles and untraceable homemade ghost guns. What we're doing is taking them to task a bit, aren't we, on this Texas abortion decision and calling the question, We'll see how principled the U.S. Supreme Court is. Gun rights groups are already promising legal challenges. For the California Report, I'm Alex Emsley. The U.S. Supreme Court will not grant an emergency order blocking the San Diego Unified School District from enforcing its COVID-19 vaccination requirement for students. In a ruling issued Friday, the justices said they made the decision because the district has delayed implementing its policy. But the court could revisit the issue if circumstances change. The vaccination mandate has been the subject of a months-long court battle after a student sued the district because it did not allow for religious exemptions. Last week, during his first couple of days on the job, the new superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District, Alberto Carvalho, made a whirlwind tour of many schools, where he asked staff and students lots of questions about learning at their campuses. How about the educational program? Is it rigorous? Is it tough? Does it push you? It pushes us to our limits. Yeah. What grades are you in? Six. 
Very good. Well, thank you for the very warm welcome. Before being chosen to lead America's second largest school system, the Portuguese-born Carvalho was superintendent of Florida's Miami-Dade County Public School System. It was a job he held for 13 years. There, he won national praise for improving academic performance, and it's hoped he can do the same for the LA Unified. As he was about to eat lunch with students in a classroom in South LA, I asked Carvalho about his immediate goals. So what's job number one for you? Say in your first hundred days, what do you want to accomplish? Key at this point is the systems of support, multi-tiered support to address the needs of our students. Secondly, stabilize the workforce condition, which at this point, uh, considering the uh, how tight the job market is, we have a lot of unfilled positions that we need to uh, completely staff. Uh, you need people in classrooms. Absolutely. There is a crisis in America right now as far as teachers are concerned, particularly hard to staff areas like special needs. In addition to that is ensuring that uh, we are preparing ourselves for the fiscal cliff that uh, LAUSD will face once the federal funds sunset. We've lost a lot of students. Uh, the federal funds right now are standing in that gap, uh, but uh, in the near future, those funds will dry up. If we do not bring those students back, if we do not reinvent our school system with additional parental options and re-energize the system, we will be facing a financial crisis. So in the short term, uh, real meat and potatoes personnel issues, getting over the pandemic, and in the long term, how to exist in a world where you may not have the same kind of federal dollars that you have had over the last couple of years. Correct. While addressing uh, the achievement gaps that have been uh, so persistent over decades, and uh, while addressing the need to accelerate students who have lost ground as a result of the pandemic towards their full academic potential. That's Alberto Carvalho, the new superintendent of the LA Unified School District. Millions of Americans with disabilities face barriers to getting married. Tying the knot can mean losing the federal benefits they rely on. From KAZU in Monterey, Eric Mahoney has this story of people trying to change the rules. Five years ago, Lori Long's boyfriend, Mark Contreras, got down on one knee. The moment captured on video. (laughs) Yes, I'll marry you. Yes, I'll marry you. Long dreamed about finding love, but wasn't sure it would happen. Especially for somebody like myself with a significant disability and, and a spinal deformity like I have. Long has an autoimmune disorder that results in painful fractures in her spine. After the proposal, she started looking at wedding dresses. Thinking about possible venues, looking at invitations. Then the nightmare hit. She learned marrying her fiancé, who isn't disabled, would mean completely losing her federal disability benefits and Medicare. Long and Contreras went from happiness to... Heartbreak. Definitely disappointment, but I didn't want to lose or give up on her. Long gets her health care through a social security program. It's complicated rules written decades ago. Assume the spouse can cover medical expenses. Long works part-time in retail. Contreras works for a nonprofit. But his insurance wouldn't cover everything Long needs. Her health care isn't just a few trips to the doctor every year, but hospital stays upwards of 50 grand per visit. Together, they decided it was a love story worth the fight. I thought, boy, this is kind of like a David and Goliath sort of a fight. You know, one person going up against a big government. But I felt that I had to try. 
She inspires me and she inspired me to write this bill. That's Congressman Jimmy Panetta of California. Last month, he introduced the Marriage Equality for Disabled Adults Act in the U.S. House of Representatives. It would ensure that people like Long never have to choose between health care or marriage. We just feel that's an antiquated and borderline cruel law that should be changed. Millions of Americans with disabilities face marriage penalties, a total or partial loss of their federal benefits. There's a separate bill in the Senate to end the penalty for people on another federal disability program. Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio introduced that legislation. It makes no sense from a logic viewpoint. It makes no sense from a moral viewpoint. It makes no sense from a religious viewpoint. It makes no sense in today's world, says disability rights advocate Bethany Lilly. I don't think, you know, 50 years ago, people would be thinking about people with disabilities getting married, whereas now that's just a a perfectly normal, uh, expected part of life for a lot of people. Lilly is with The ARC, a national disability organization based in Washington, D.C. She hears heartbreaking stories all the time. Generally speaking, I suggest that people talk to a lawyer before they think about getting married. That's an unfortunate position to put folks with disabilities into. And, says Lily, the wrong message to send. As a person with a disability and as somebody who identifies as LGBTQ, for me, marriage means the acceptance by society. Meanwhile, Lori Long and her fiancé say they aren't giving up on saying I do. Love is very powerful. And I think when two people are able to tap into that energy then look out, world, because that kind of loving energy is close to unstoppable. For the California Report, I'm Erica Mahoney in Monterey. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. A few years ago, Stephanie Fu was working as a successful radio journalist, producing stories for the show This American Life. Then it all started to unravel. The pain from Fu's past, she suffered terrible child abuse, was catching up with her. And she couldn't cover it up anymore by working 70 hours a week. Fu quit so she can focus on healing, and now she's written a book about her journey called What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. She talked to KQED health correspondent April Domboski. They started their conversation with Fu talking about growing up in San Jose, and a warning that this segment may be disturbing for some listeners. Our parents had other names. In mixed company, we might call them mom and dad, 
But when those people left, our fathers became Appa, or Baba, or Papa, our mothers Oma, or Mama, or Man. Our parents washed and reused our Ziploc bags and takeout containers and put their yarn in cookie tins. They watched Home Improvement and Chinese soap operas and Bollywood films while darning holes in our jeans with cloth left over from the dresses we outgrew. Our parents didn't talk much to our friends, but our friends didn't mind, because they'd be occupied eating our mother's big trays of pancit and lumpia, or Burmese pancakes, or pho with jalua, or fluffy taro buns and yan-yan. In general, our parents were not taught to take slow breaths when they were upset to calm themselves down, and many of our parents were not taught to spare the rod. The way I remember it, the school entered into a state of anxious panic when grades were dispensed. You'd see kids here and there curled up in the fetal position in the hall, their heads between their knees, sometimes sitting still and sometimes with their shoulders shaking. These were the kids who got B-pluses or worse. And then there was the group of us that used to huddle near the portable classrooms at the back of the school. Out on the edge of the blacktop was a large, pale yellow shipping container, and that's where the sad kids hung out. Every day, we would summon our smoldering angst and hurl a bit of our lunch at the container. And then we played our favorite game. Who had it worse? I remember one boy's mother burned him with cigarette butts. Another's locked him out of his bedroom and forced him to sleep under the couch because, she said, he was so worthless that he didn't deserve his own space. My close friend's mother chased her around the house, slapping her and telling her she was nothing, and she once woke her daughter up by choking her. I talked about the welts on my legs, about how I'd curled into a ball when I was thrown down the stairs. We would debate the logistics of our abuse. Was it better to be whipped with something narrow like a cane, or be hit by something large and solid? Was a welt more painful long-term than a bruise? Was it more demoralizing to be belittled, or simply ignored? Thank you so much. As an adult, you went back and interrogated these conversations with your classmates, and you learned new terms to describe what you were experiencing, like intergenerational trauma. Looking back, how would you describe what was happening to you and your classmates? Yeah, looking back, I think we were an immigrant community of people who had escaped very serious, pretty horrible conflicts, a lot of them proxy wars that the United States had been involved in, like the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Chinese Cultural Revolution for me and my family, the Malayan emergency. And there were some parents who were still sort of caught in the grips of the trauma they had experienced and were taking that out on their children. And I think we were carrying our parents' pain in ways that we didn't quite understand at the time. Can I ask you to explain what complex PTSD is and how it's different from the PTSD we hear about in relation to soldiers who came back from a combat zone or victims of a natural disaster? Yeah, so you can get traditional, quote unquote, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, from a single traumatic event. So let's say you were hit by a car and you might be anxious every time you're crossing the street or if you're driving. But complex PTSD is if that traumatic event happens over and over and over over the course of years. It's kind of like if you were hit by the the car every week for many years. Um, It also tends to have be more of a relational condition, having less trust towards other people, because generally the cause of complex PTSD is other people being abusive. 
My mom and dad, unfortunately, were really physically, verbally, and emotionally abusive. Um, I was put in really dangerous situations a lot of the time, beaten pretty severely, and was just always on my toes as a kid. And when I was 13, my mom abandoned me. And when I was 16, my dad left me. He left me the house, and so I lived by myself for the last two-ish years of high school. One of the ways that you describe complex PTSD manifesting in your adult life was if you made a mistake. If you made a mistake at work, for example, what would happen for you emotionally? Yeah, so, you know, when I was a little kid, my mom would force me to write these journals. And if, for example, I messed up, like, there and there, like the possessive there and the location there, I might be beaten for it. And so I think that I carried that subconsciously into adulthood in that like if I messed up at work, it's not that I thought that my boss would beat me, but I had what's called an emotional flashback, which is that I went back to that feeling of feeling scared and anxious and that there was some inherent danger and that I had horribly messed up somehow in this massive way even if the mistake was a fairly small one. And so inside, I might totally freak out, self-lacerate over minute things that happened at work. One of the things I love most about your book are the passages where you describe the different kind of healing and therapies that you, that you did. And one of the things that you tried was a therapy called EMDR. Can you describe what that is and how it helped you? So. EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it is this very weird therapy, basically, where you go through really, really hard traumatic moments while looking at like a finger or a light sort of moving back and forth. You're kind of engaging your senses, your body, while also going back and looking at hard memories. And people don't know why this works, but study after study comes through showing that it does work somehow and it really worked for me in some ways in that like it really it kept me grounded while looking at hard memories and it kept me able to look at them from a really logical perspective that prevented me from drifting into self-blame or minimizing what happened to me it sort of allowed me to be in my trauma and realize how horrible it was and not be totally dissociated. You also worked with another therapist, Dr. Jacob Hom, and I was just absolutely fascinated with <laughs> your descriptions of your work with him. Google um, Docs therapy. Google Docs therapy, yeah. Tell yeah. how did that work? How did that come up? It sounds like something the two of you kind of invented together. I think we kind of did invent it, maybe. <laughs> um, so we were recording all of our sessions. And after our first session, I went downstairs and two blocks away from the hospital. I went to a cafe. I uploaded all of the audio. I transcribed it and I put it into a Google Doc and I shared it with Dr. Hom. And I started making comments on it like, oh, you know, what's going on with me here? I seem kind of like out of it. Or, you know, why did you ask this question? It seems really kind of mean. <laughs> and he also went in the Google Doc and he started breaking it down, analyzing everything that had happened in that session in terms of like 
was I triggered here? Was I dissociated there? Why were we mismatching here? How come we weren't on the same plane? Like, was there some break in our communication? And this was so helpful for me because I'm really comfortable editing on Google Docs as a radio producer. You know, that like that's what we do. And it was like editing the trauma out of my conversations. Like one of the first wow moments was in that very first session, you could see on the page, it was like a whole page of me talking about nothing, like blabbing on about my husband's job, right? And like, if you had told me that I had blabbed on forever about that, I probably would have denied it or been like, eh, it probably wasn't that bad. But on the page, there was no denying it. Like, why am I going on forever about this? And Dr. Hom made this comment saying, ah, traditional dissociation. And I was like, why would I be dissociated? And I scrolled up and right before I started on my long rant, I had brought up my mom holding a knife to my neck. And I totally dissociated in order to talk about that. And then I just got lost. I was not in my body. I was not present. And I was just blabbing because I had no awareness of where I was at the time. And that was like, whoa, <laughs> a whoa moment. So I really got to analyze how I'm being perceived, how my trauma comes across, what it is I do in a way that made me feel safe. Were you able to actually put what you were learning in your therapy sessions into action in your own relationships? Oh, absolutely. I think that that's what Dr. Hom's whole approach is. He's kind of just like, you're going to practice having a relationship with me. You're going to practice conflict. You're going to practice vulnerability. You're going to practice asking for your needs. It's going to be a safe environment for you to do that here. You can look on the Google Doc and see how you're doing it. And then you can go out in the world and try it. And it worked. Like, you know, I wouldn't say it cured me entirely, but it gave me so much perspective. Can you think of a time when you, like, can you think of something, an interaction maybe with a friend or your husband where you were able to have insight and, and put some of those lessons into action right away? Oh, I use it with my husband all the time. Totally. There are plenty of times when I think that my husband is mad for some reason. And for a while, I would just sort of like suppress that until it exploded. And I think it's really opened me up to commu meta-communicating, like, hey, um, I'm feeling this way. Can we talk about it? <laughs> you know, um, just sort of entering with a sense of curiosity more than assumptions and judgment. What role would you say writing the book has played in your own healing process? I think, if anything, you know, the way that the book is being received has been kind of healing because I wanted to write the book so other people would feel less alone. Because when I first was diagnosed, I felt like a freak and I felt alone and I felt like I need to read a story of somebody else who survived this. And so I didn't want anybody to have to go through that. But when people are reading the book and they're writing to me or they're putting on the internet, like, me too, me too, this resonated with me, I felt this, now I feel less alone. We're all, like, it's a circle of validation. That was author Stephanie Fu, author of the new book, What My Bones Know. If you'd like to hear more of this interview, download our California Report daily podcast. And that is the California Report for Monday, February 21st. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. 
Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.